My body literally buzzes and my chest fills with heat as I read it each morning, afternoon, and night. It does not make any mention of God's wrath, nor does it ever dwell on the wicked deeds of men. Instead, it reminds its reader constantly that God is love and that loving one another is Christ's commandment. And because it is so positive, it puts the reader into a good mood, which makes loving and forgiving others feel so much easier. So said a reviewer of a book called The Positive Bible. That is a compilation of selected Bible passages deemed to be uplifting, inspiring, healing. And somebody edited out the parts judged to be troubling, uninspiring, judgmental. And what's left was called the positive Bible. The reviewer admitted, whereas the Bible contains a record of both the problem and the solution, this book speaks solely of the solution, making it a great source of encouragement. I wonder how that sounds to you. Maybe it resonates with something you've heard from a family member. Maybe somebody in your workplace has this kind of opinion. Maybe you. When you encounter the difficult, disturbing parts of the Bible, long for something a little more user-friendly. Our passage today, Deuteronomy chapter 9, was edited out of the positive Bible. It was actually excluded. But be that as it may, today we're going to see that it rings true to real life. And as sobering as our passage is, it touches on not an escapist version of what we'd like to see, but the world as it really is. Real issues that we face. Our passage today is about sin. A God who opposes it, a people who commit it, and a mediator who deals with it. Turn with me, please, to Deuteronomy chapter 9. Deuteronomy chapter 9. And while you're turning there, remember that all the warfare that we're watching on TV these days, the disease, the death, these were not originally part of this world. They're the product of sin, rebellion against a generous creator who made this world pure, pristine, perfect. It was sin that entered in through our first parents that marred the world, introducing disappointment and disease and death. And so God set in motion a new creation. He actually chose one nation to be his covenant people, kind of a pilot project, kind of a, a new humanity. 3,500 years ago, he rescued them out of slavery in Egypt and then claimed him to be his own, calling them his treasured possession. And he brought them into a promised land. And as they're on the verge of entry, we notice, first, a God who opposes sin. We see this in Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 1. Hear, O Israel, you were to cross over the Jordan today to go in 
to dispossess nations greater and mightier than you. Cities great and fortified up to heaven, a people great and tall, the sons of the Anakim, whom you know, and of whom you have heard it said, who can stand before the sons of Anak? Know therefore today that he who goes over before you as a consuming fire is the Lord your God. He will destroy them and subdue them before you. So you shall drive them out and make them perish quickly as the Lord has promised you. So with the covenant people of God on the borders of the promised land, Moses gives them his final instructions. Moses is approaching his death. And he says, Hear, O Israel, which we've seen repeated again and again already. And he was assuring them that they would in fact go in and very soon, despite the presence of inhabitants that were superior to them in every way. A nation greater than them, taller, stronger, much more sophisticated, a nation more powerful than them with fortified cities, impenetrable places, renowned for their military strength. Who can stand before the sons of Anak? It was kind of like in the NCAA men's basketball tournament, little St. Peter's somehow made it to the Elite Eight against all the heavyweight powerhouse perennials. I know only 3% of you get that illusion. <laughs> Let me translate. St. Peter's is a little no-name school with zero chance of winning the NCAA tournament, but they continue beating people. They're totally outclassed by all of these other teams, taller than them, better than them. Well, so was Israel, except for one thing. Look at verse 3. Know therefore today that he who goes over before you as a consuming fire is the Lord your God. So you shall drive them out and make them perish quickly as the Lord promised you. It was God who would fight their battles for them. And not just any divinity. What does it say in verse 3? The Lord your God, Yahweh, the self-existent, sovereign maker of all the heaven and the earth, the one who depends on no one else, who revealed himself in understandable words when he said to Moses, I am who I am, and entered into a family covenant with these people particularly. It was the only God who would go in, and verse 1, it says, displace the people. Clear them out. Now, when I see verse 1, I'm thinking, well, what right did the people of Israel have to displace anyone? Especially these nations who had been there for so long and had farmed the land and built the houses and reared the families and Israel is just going to come in and take it for themselves? By what right? By their right? No. By God's command. Turn back to chapter 7, verse 1. Chapter 7, verse 1. Moses says, When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it, and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations 
more numerous and mightier than you, and when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. Now, for many of us, if we had to explain this to our coworkers, it would be cause for embarrassed horror. I mean, you can only imagine what your non-Christian coworker would think of something like this. No wonder this got edited out of the positive Bible. But as horrible as this is, I'm not making light of it. D.A. Carson said, there is a sense in which we'd better get used to it. It is of a piece with the flood, with the destruction of several empires, and with hell itself. Friends, what we have here is God exercising divine judgment on these nations through the instrumentality of the people of Israel. So the Anakim and all of the Canaanite nations, they were an entire society in open rebellion against God, deserving of punishment. And the invasion that took place was kind of like the end times judgment fast-forwarded back into time. So it was an anticipation. In their case, the time had come. God could no longer tolerate their sin. This was nothing short of an act of divine punishment, executed through the people of Israel. Now, why do we have such a hard time with this? Because we tend to think of people as basically good. But the Bible describes the world as in rebellion against not God, and not just some of us not a subset, all of us, by nature. You know, we all come from the same root. If you reach all the way back, our father, Adam, sinned, and all of us became corrupt. So far from this being a divine temper tantrum, or just a spasm of blind rage, God had actually been incredibly patient toward these people as they committed the atrocities of child sacrifice, temple prostitution, idolatry, people made in His image. God waited, and He waited for centuries. Long before, He had told Abraham, back in Genesis 15, Abraham, the father of the people of Israel, God told him, one day, Abraham, your family will enter into this land and they shall come back in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. But now it was complete. And so this invasion was divine judgment. Well, it's in the same way that Sodom and Gomorrah were judged. In the same way that the whole planet was judged in the flood during the days of Noah. And so here with the Anakim, God is just. God is holy. And there's no one like Him. You see, every sin that you and I commit is rightly understood as some sort of cosmic treason. And the reason for that is the creator of the universe made us in his own image. That means we were designed in order to display his character to the world, but we have distorted, contorted the image of God almost beyond all recognition. We have made a misrepresentation of who he is and we've attracted divine judgment to ourselves, and so has every human on the planet. So if you're here, 
in a church this morning, in our church, in this assembly, and you're not a follower of Jesus, we're delighted that you're here, and we would have you understand really clearly that the judgment of the Amorites here foreshadows a coming judgment, a final and conclusive one. It is an anticipation of a coming day that defies our possibility to imagine when the entire world, the whole planet will be judged and personal preferences will not matter on that day. Public opinion polls will be long forgotten. What we see here first is a God who opposes sin. That's the first point. The second thing we see is a people who commit sin. A people who commit sin. It wasn't just the Canaanites. It was also the people of Israel. Look at verse 4 of chapter 9. Do not say in your heart after the Lord your God has thrust them out before you. It is because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess this land. Whereas it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. Not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going in to possess their land. But because of the wickedness of these nations the Lord your God is driving out from before you. And that he may confirm the word that the Lord swore to your fathers to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Know therefore that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness. For you are a stubborn people. He says it three times, just to be perfectly clear. It's not because you're any different. It's not because you're any better, any morally superior. No, not at all. God knew their hearts. He knew that these people would quickly try to claim credit. They would rewrite the history books if necessary to make themselves the good guys, the hero of the story. And so Moses unmistakably set the record straight. It wasn't because of your righteousness. It was because of your wickedness. That's verse 4. It wasn't because of your righteousness. It was because of God's promise to the fathers. That's verse 5. It wasn't because of your righteousness, because after all, verse 6, you are a stubborn people. Interesting, three times he uses that word, stubborn. Verse 6, verse 13, verse 27. Not to mention, as we're about to see, the word rebellious, verse 7, verse 23. Or how about this word, provocative? as in provoking God's wrath, verse 8, verse 18, or corrupt, verse 12. How about idolatrous, sinful, evil, unbelieving, disobedient, wicked? Eleven such labels. Not really what you would expect for a people chosen by God, but that's exactly who they were. It wasn't, apparently, just a Canaanite problem. It was a human problem. Jew and Gentile alike are under sin. Oh, you don't believe me, says Moses? I'll give you examples from your own history. And then he cites five instances 
when they prove his thesis. Just from different places along the journey from Egypt to where they were, the plains of Moab, about to enter the promised land. The first one was at Horeb, which is another word for Mount Sinai, where they received the law. Look at verse 7. Remember, and do not forget, how you provoke the Lord your God to wrath in the wilderness. From the day you came out of the land of Egypt until you came to this place, you have been rebellious against the Lord. Even at Horeb you provoked the Lord to wrath, and the Lord was so angry with you that he was ready to destroy you. When I went up the mountain to receive the tablets of stone, the tablets of the covenant that the Lord made with you, I remained on the mountain forty days and forty nights. I neither ate bread nor drank water. And the Lord gave me two tablets of stone written with the finger of God. And on them were all the words that the Lord had spoken with you on the mountain out of the midst of the fire on the day of assembly. And at the end of forty days and forty nights, the Lord gave me two tablets of stone, the tablets of the covenant. Then the Lord said to me, Arise, go down quickly from here. For your people whom you have brought from Egypt have acted corruptly. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made themselves a metal image. And when you consider what these people had just experienced in recent days, this is absolutely shocking. Think of it. They had been delivered from slavery with miracles so astonishing that we still talk about them. 3,500 years later. God judged Pharaoh and his whole army for everyone to see. This was a public event. It's no surprise to me that it didn't make it in the historical annals of Egypt because they were utterly humiliated. And then he sustained these people in the wilderness, brought them to the mountain where God actually met them and pledged himself to them. I will be your God. You will be my people. And then he gave them a good law that was reflective of his character. And they promised. Do you remember? We will do everything the Lord has said. We will obey. And if you recall, at Horeb, they had trembled with fear. They actually heard God's voice. You shall not make for yourself an idol. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. And their response, very interesting, their response in that moment was to plead with Moses... Do not have God speak to us or we will die. And yet, what short memories they had. Just a few weeks later, and there they are, they fashion a metal calf. It was like committing adultery on your honeymoon. Appalling disloyalty. Despite the rescue from Egypt. Despite the manifestations of His glory along the way. The thundering voice from heaven. These people were just plain pagans at heart. Verse 12 they made themselves a metal image, just like the Canaanites. And so God was just to be angry. Verse 13. Verse 13, furthermore, the Lord said to me, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stubborn people. Let me alone that I may destroy them, blot out their name from under heaven, and I will make of you a nation mightier and greater than they. So I turned, Moses says, and came down from the mountain, and the mountain was burning with fire. And the two tablets of the covenant were in my two hands. And I looked, and behold, you had sinned against the Lord your God. You had made yourselves a golden calf. 
you had turned aside quickly from the way that the Lord had commanded you. So I took hold of the two tablets and threw them out of my two hands and broke them before your eyes. They had broken the covenant. Moses broke the tablets. These people were pagans at heart, prostituting themselves to other gods that didn't even really exist, or worshiping the true God, but in a way he had expressly forbidden, a way that would demean him, reduce him to something visual, something animal. They had become like what they worshiped, a stubborn, stiff-necked animal that won't respond to bit or bridle, and so they were exposed to God's holy wrath. So God threatened destroying them and starting over from scratch, from Moses' family. And you know, this golden calf incident, it was only one example. Moses could have recited many more. Look at verse 22. Chapter 9, verse 22. At Taborah also, and at Massah, and Kibroth Hatava, you provoke the Lord to wrath. And when the Lord sent you from Kadesh Barnea, saying, Go up and take possession of the land that I have given you, then you rebelled against the commandment of the Lord your God, and did not believe or obey His voice. You have been rebellious against the Lord from the day that I knew you. The golden calf incident, it wasn't an isolated event. It wasn't just a one-off mistake. At Tabera, the people complained about their difficulties. You can read of that in Numbers 11 later today. It says God's anger was aroused. Fire actually consumed the outskirts of the camp. Some people died in the fire. And interestingly, just 14 months before that, God had rescued these people, and no generation in world history had ever experienced a more spectacular work of God than this. They didn't have to fight one battle to get out from the clutches of the number one superpower of the world, and they were set free, and they were on their way to a land flowing with milk and honey. And then this, they grumbled against God. Well, the same thing at Massah, where it says they found fault with Moses. That's Exodus chapter 17. God had provided manna for food, but in this instance, He provided no water. The people were thirsty. And so what did the people do? Well, they turned on Moses, and they doubted God's goodness. They actually wished they had never left Egypt. Or take Kibrath Hatava, where they complained about the menu in the wilderness. Numbers 11, oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing because they were slaves. The cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. But now our strength is dried up and there's nothing at all but this manna to look at. And so, interestingly, mark this, their sin had distorted their memory. Ah, Egypt, land of plenty. Why did we ever leave it? It's what we call revisionist history. You go back and you reconstruct things because of the way you want them to be, blinding you to the blessings of God that you enjoy now, like that heavenly provision of manna. Now, admittedly, they had to eat it every day, but they were camping. 
they had no right to expect. Complete comforts of hearth and home. And then finally, the example of Kadesh Barnea, where 40 years earlier, God had told them to go up and take the land. Moses recounted this in chapter 1 of Deuteronomy. And remember, they declined. They disobeyed. They doubted. Well, it was instances like this that caused Moses to say something very amazing in verse 24. You have been rebellious against the Lord from the day that I knew you. It's like they were saying to God, I don't prefer the way you've arranged things in my life. It's kind of like they were saying, I don't care that these circumstances prevent an opportunity for me to show your faithfulness or my obedience. I want to run my life. Thank you. Instead of being thankful, they grumbled. Well, that's what sin is. You need to understand, sin is not just an ethical mistake. It's not something we do on the outside. It originates on the inside. It takes us deep into the recesses of the heart. It's who we are. And that's why, regardless of our education, regardless of our profession or culture, we keep doing the same things over and over don't we? What we often call bad habits or character flaws. Well, they're really the result of a corrupted heart. The well is poisoned, and so the water is impure. Friends, whenever we sin, whether it's heartlessness toward the poor, whether it's sinful immodesty, whether it's sexual lust or anger, all that it shows is that we're not satisfied with God. So he's no longer central to our affections. He's no longer enough. And so we begin to look elsewhere. So by nature, you and I are no different than these Israelites. We're no different than these Canaanites. It's not just them then. It's us here today. All of us by nature are guilty before God. One writer said, I am guilty. You are guilty. Everybody in your family is guilty. Everybody at your school and workplace is guilty. The clerk at the store is guilty. The bus driver is guilty. And all the people in Yugoslavia and Kosovo and China and Guinea and Honduras are guilty before God. Friends, people who put their hope in education or in positive thinking are just medicating a symptom just barely scratching at the surface of what's a much deeper, severe problem. According to the Bible, the diagnosis is not that we're basically okay. It's not even that we're sick. What did we see in Ephesians 2? It's that we're dead. By nature, in the morgue, a spiritual corpse... I remember once talking to my non-Christian neighbor, Barry, my neighbor next door at Montaza. He lived in number one for many years. Barry worked for the vet in Alline, taking care of animals. I told him on one occasion that I was preaching on the subject of human depravity and the moral brokenness of humanity, that, that humans by nature are unable to please God, that there, there's a warping that's taken place and that it spills over into the broken relationships in our families and marriages and in the workplace. And I remember being really clear with him 
on the doctrine of depravity. And I was thinking, this guy's not a Christian. I wonder, what's he thinking of this? I mean, maybe he's going to get upset. But to my surprise, Barry said, I totally agree with you. That's why I stopped working with people and started working with animals. Well, if you are here today and you're not a believer, let me address you, especially if you come along week after week and you listen to these sermons, you enjoy times here. We're delighted that you come, but recognize you are in danger spiritually. Friend, you're in danger eternally. You can continue raising personal objections while God's judgment approaches closer every single day or you can bow to the truth and you can relent and repent that this is what God really says about you just plead guilty as charged because as J.I. Packer said men are opposed to God in their sin and God is opposed to men in his holiness friends this is terribly relevant to you Why don't we just pause and let this little guy um, find his folks? Thank you, Lisa. How is it that this doctrine of human depravity and sin and the coming judgment is relevant to you? Think of it this way. You know, in this room, there are many burdens represented. All of us came in carrying a burden. I mean, there are troubling medical diagnoses in this room. There are uh, disturbing relational problems. There are worrisome situations at work that we can think of. If you're a parent, there are problems at home. If you're a student, there's the need to perform well on your exams. There are countless needs in this room today, and they press in on you, they threaten to engulf you, and make you think that these problems are your central concern. But friends, our greatest problem is not our health or our jobs. It is not our performance on exams or our children. Our greatest problem is our sin. We're no different from these ancient Israelites three and a half millennia ago. So just like them, we need a mediator to deal with the sin. This is the final point. A mediator. Do you know when mediators are needed in commercial matters? It's when there's a serious dispute. Somebody's got to step in. Somebody qualified to represent the interests of both parties to the dispute. And in the case of Israel, it was Moses who stood in the gap between his covenant people and the living God. They faced a real and present danger because of their sin. And so what did Moses do? Look at verse 18. Chapter 9, verse 18. Then I lay prostrate before the Lord, as before. Forty days and forty nights. I neither ate bread nor drank water because, all of, the sin, because of all of the sin that you had committed in doing what was evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke Him to anger. For I was afraid of the anger and hot displeasure that the Lord bore against you so that He was ready to destroy you. But the Lord listened to me at that time also. And the Lord was so angry with Aaron that he was ready to destroy him. And I prayed for Aaron also at the same time. 
Then I took the sinful thing, the calf you had made, and burned it with fire and crushed it, grinding it very small until it was as fine as dust, and I threw the dust of it into the brook that ran down from the mountain. That way they wouldn't try to salvage the gold and do something else with it. These were people who were arrogant. They were unteachable. Moses was very different. Look at verse 18. It says, I lay prostrate. That means he lay flat on the ground in a posture of humility and submission. And he neither ate nor drank for 40 days. Why? Because of all the sin that you had committed. He knew these people were in peril. Look at verse 19. I was afraid of the anger and hot displeasure that the Lord bore against you so that he was ready to destroy you. And not only them, even the high priest. He had given in. Aaron's hands had fashioned the golden calf, and so Moses prayed for him too. Well, that's what a mediator does. He stands between two hostile parties, two aggrieved parties, and he brings them together. But how exactly? How did Moses pray for these people? Well, look at verse 25. Verse 25, he resumes. So I lay prostrate before the Lord for these 40 days and 40 nights because the Lord had said he would destroy you. And I prayed to the Lord, O Lord God, do not destroy your people and your heritage, whom you have redeemed through your greatness, whom you have brought out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Do not regard the stubbornness of this people or their wickedness or their sin, lest the land from which you brought us Say, because the Lord was not able to bring them into the land that He promised them, and because He hated them, He has brought them out to put them to death in the wilderness. For they are your people and your heritage, whom you brought out by your great power and by your outstretched arm. What was Moses' approach in being a mediator on this occasion? Did he downplay the seriousness of their plight? the depth of their depravity? Did he say, for example, oh, they're really not that bad, Lord. Just a lapse of judgment. Give them a second chance. Did he suggest, even for a moment, that they didn't really deserve to be wiped out for their rebellion? No, not at all. He said, don't regard their wickedness. So Moses appealed not to Israel's character at all, but to God's. Three ways that he appealed to God's character in this prayer. First, God had chosen these people. Moses called them your heritage, your people, as he addressed God. God hadn't delivered them out of Egypt because they were so good in the first place. God had his own plans. You chose them. Number two, God had promised the fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's interesting how Moses appeals to history in order to show their unfaithfulness, but God's covenant fidelity. And then the third thing that he appealed to in God's character was ultimately his glory, his reputation. What would the people say? What would they think? Well, the, the Egyptians would say that he brought them out just to destroy them. He promised to bring them into the land, but he couldn't. And amazingly, the Lord actually listened to Moses. Look at chapter 10. 
At that same time, the Lord said to me, Cut for yourselves two tablets of stone like the first, and come up to me on the mountain and make an ark of wood. And I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets that you broke, and you shall put them in the ark. So I made an ark of acacia wood and cut two tablets of stone like the first and went up on the mountain with the two tablets in my hand. And he wrote on the tablets in the same writing as before the Ten Commandments that the Lord had spoken to you on the mountain out of the midst of the fire on the day of the assembly. And the Lord gave them to me. Then I turned and came down from the mountain and put the tablets in the ark that I made. And there they are as the Lord commanded me. For a second time, the Lord Himself wrote the divine words on those tablets. And so these people had a whole new beginning, undeserved, unmerited. Behold, what manner of love is this? As Moses said, as, as God said to Moses in the book of Exodus, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger. Even Aaron, who fashioned the golden calf, God didn't strike him down. He allowed Aaron to remain in office, and his own son would one day succeed him as priest. But I think the most amazing thing is that on this occasion, the living God actually listened to a man. Look at 10 verse 10. I myself stayed on the mountain as at the first time, 40 days and 40 nights. And the Lord listened to me that time also. The Lord was unwilling to destroy you. And the Lord said to me, Arise, go on your journey at the head of the people, so that they may go in and possess the land which I swore to their fathers to give them. As I thought about this passage this week, I wondered, how did it register with the people? When they heard all this, how close they had come to being destroyed off the face of the earth. That God actually intended to destroy them, chapter 9, verse 14. And yet, there was an overriding desire not to do so. Chapter 10, verse 11. The Lord was unwilling to destroy you. Their very survival to this point, their very presence, 40 years after the fact, at the border of the promised land, was all of grace. It was all a free gift. All because Moses had stood in the breach between a holy God on the one hand and a guilty people on the other. As it says in Psalm 106, he said he would destroy them had not Moses, his chosen one, stood in the breach before him to turn away his wrath from destroying them. It's very interesting that centuries later another prophet, Isaiah, predicted another mediator. Isaiah 53, 12, he was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Just like Moses, who anticipated, who prefigured another mediator who was to come. You know, the New Testament book of Hebrews says Jesus is worth even more glory than Moses. Because Moses was a servant. Jesus was the eternal son. Look at your bulletin at page 8, what we read earlier. Look at that last paragraph, the one that we, we read out loud. 
Everybody got page eight open? For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Not just any mediator, is it? The man, Christ Jesus. He's fully human. He's a man, so he can represent us perfectly. And he knows well all of our frailty and all of our weakness. He's been tempted in every way we have, yet without sin. And yet, the uniqueness of this mediator, he's also fully God. He came into the world from the outside, and so he can also represent the divine party. He is the one and only. He is the God-man. There is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. And that means the church is not the mediator. There are no saints. There are no angels worthy of being prayed to. Mother Mary is in no position to assist you. She, like every other human in this world, must approach God only through the one appointed mediator between God and men. You must go direct to Him. He won the settlement by paying a price, not a price of money, not a price of counsel or advice. What does it say here? It says, He gave Himself as a ransom for all. Very interesting language. That's the purchase price to set free a slave or a prisoner. An exchange ransom was offered to set free the condemned. This price wasn't coerced from Jesus. He willingly paid it. It says He gave Himself as a ransom. No one else was qualified. Phil Riken said He paid the price that only man could owe and only God could pay. Not a victim of circumstance. Not a victim of mob violence. It was planned before the world was created. Jesus did it voluntarily. He gave Himself as a ransom for all. And that means it doesn't matter where you're from and it doesn't matter what you've done. Here is a ransom for all, all who will receive Him. No one is excluded who even today will receive Him in repentance and faith. Is there anyone here today who is declining this offer? Is there anybody in this room who is hardening your heart, turning a blind eye, a deaf ear to this rich offer of redemption, the forgiveness of all of your sins, a reconciled relationship with the Creator of the universe? If this is you, my friend, it's not for want of an offer, because Jesus Christ offers Himself to you, even today. What would hold you back from entrusting yourself to Him, yielding to Him in repentance and faith? I know some people say this message is too negative. I mean, all the talk about sin and judgment. and Some people would even change the Bible. Some would want to emphasize maybe more uplifting themes. You know, cut the negative self-talk, focus on the positives, we're told. 
This is nothing new. J. Gresham Machen was addressing this at the midpoint of the 20th century. Machen said, although Christianity does not end with a broken heart, it does begin with a broken heart. It begins with the consciousness of sin. Without the consciousness of sin, the whole of the gospel will seem to be an idle tale. And I fear that that's all the positive Bible is. An idle fable. What's lost, my friends, on so many churches today is that by giving up on sin, they're giving up on the grandeur of the gospel. Grace is only amazing because it truly saves wretches. You can't be saved if you're not lost. Like it or not, sin is sadly relevant today. I mean, all of us know it. I mean, turn on the TV. Look at the evidence of the vast moral disease that afflicts all of us, regardless of passport, regardless of profession, war in Europe or the Horn of Africa, war in society at large, politically and culturally, war in your own family, in your own marriage at times, even in your own heart, even this morning. You came into this room and there were competing desires going on. You brought with you, whether you knew it or not, a deadly companion. Consider your sin. Consider it carefully. Because if you get a clear understanding of your sin, you are much closer to the solution. Once let a man see his sin, and he must see the Savior. Let's pray. Lord, we praise you for this all-sufficient Redeemer, this one mediator who has interposed his blood between God and men. We thank you for the one who was uniquely qualified, fully man, able to represent us, fully God, able to represent the offended divine party, a perfect Savior. Oh, we pray that we might celebrate him. Oh, Lord, that this gospel might infuse our hopes and dreams and worship and life. Lord, even as we partake of this closing meal, may you be honored as we remember the saving work of our Redeemer, in whose name we pray. Amen.